You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien, brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to Unfiltered with me, James O'Brien. I'm joined this week by the editor and form, well, former editor of The Guardian, Alan Rusbridger, who is one of the industry's great thinkers, but also, of course, the man who was in charge of that newspaper during some of the most seminal stories of, of, of recent years. The phone hacking uh, at the News of the World that, that really turned British media upside down. And I think you could apply the same description to the WikiLeaks and the Edward Snowden revelations that The Guardian published. He's written a new book, Breaking News, The Remaking of Journalism and Why It Matters Now. Um, It's out now and I'm looking forward to finding out, amongst other things, how much responsibility he's prepared to take for the fact that news is broken. If you've put in decades uh, on the country's, I suppose, only serious left-wing newspaper and a couple of years after walking away, you've concluded that journalism needs to be remade, can I start by asking how much responsibility you bear for it breaking in the first place? (laughs) Well, um, none of us is perfect. And um, what I tried to describe was a massive disruption of news. I suppose we all know that. We all know that every journalist who works in any organisation has been struggling with that for the last 20 years. And we all got lots of it wrong. We got some of it right. But I thought it was valuable to try and write down what it felt like to be at the eye of that storm. As it happened. And the 20-year window is pretty much the internet. Yeah. I started editing in 1995. I remember going to America in 1994 to look at the internet. Right. What was it then? Uh, it was a, in, in each newspaper, there was a tiny group of geeks. So at the New York Times, there were two or three people who at that stage did not think that the internet would be any good for news. They were just doing culture. And they were sure that, that news would never work on the internet. Gosh. So it was that <laughs> rudimentary. Yes. And I came back pretty sure that the days of newspapers were numbered. So um, you didn't buy their theory that news wouldn't work on Oh, no. I mean, I, I thought that anything would work. I mean, for the whole 20-year period that I edited, we were pretty much making it up as we went along. Because there was no rule book in place for dealing with this disruption that was spreading like wildfire. Well, there were two ways of it. I mean, yeah, that's true, but there were two ways. One was the internet. And I remember we, we did that. That took about eight years to sort out what it meant to distribute stuff digitally. And then somebody came into my office and said, there's this thing called Web 2.0, and that's bigger than Web Mm. 1.0. And that seemed impossible to believe because it didn't seem possible anything could be more dramatic than squirting stuff down telephone lines where once we had printed it. Yes. But, of course, that turned out to be true. We've jumped ahead, and I'm glad because people have an idea of where where the destination of the conversation will be. But let's rewind violently. You, You were born in... What's now Zambia, what was then northern mm-hmm. Rhodesia. What are your sort of earliest memories? You came back to England at the age of five. Presumably you don't remember much before that. Very little. My father had gone out in the 1930s to be a, a colonial civil servant, so he ran the education system in Tanganyika in the end, Tanzania as it now is. So I don't remember much about Africa, and, and we pitched up in England late 50s, which seemed a very sort of cold and miserable place. Or did it, it stay, probably was. How long did it stay cold and miserable in your... I th- well, I think the 50s probably were a bit cold and miserable. And by the time I was old enough to appreciate the 60s, that seemed much more technicolour and vibrant. Did you inhale? Uh, not, not, 
also pitifully late in my life. <laughs> Music, though, brought colour and uh, imagination into yeah, this landscape. I, I used to sing in a choir, and then that became a cathedral choir, and then I turned out I was quite a good pianist and quite a good clarinetist. So I've, I've always been an interested amateur musician, and that's always been part of my life and an important part of my life. Well, I've seen it described as your first love, so was it never a professional ambition in your younger days? Uh, I think right about the age of 16... I might have harboured hopes, but then I also harboured hopes of opening the bowling for England at that stage, so <laughs> neither happened. But you can have more fun playing music at the age of 64 than you can pretending to be a cricketer. Yes, I suppose so. Well, unless you're a spin bowler. There's no timeless, timeless gifts. When I sort of think of journalism appearing on your horizon, nothing you've said so far suggests that it was a particular childhood enthusiasm. And you've also been quite self-critical about your intellectual capacity as a, as a younger person, saying you weren't very bright after failing the 11 plus. So when do you think you became, let's just say, conscious of journalism? Well, my father was a news junkie. Right. So I grew up in a household in which the radio or the television or a newspaper was always present. And when I was at university, I, as a holiday job, there were no such things as internships then. I thought it might be quite fun to try and write for a newspaper and they took me on and almost from the first day of, of doing that as a holiday job I didn't want to do anything else I just thought it was the best fun so you fell into it I mean yeah, well, you it weren't one of the accidental and, and it could have been something else I mean it just as soon as you I got your foot with teaching yes I would probably have been a teacher if I hadn't been a journalist sorry advertiser in Cambridge Evening News yeah what, what, what sort of gap have local newspapers left on the media landscape do you think well I, in the book i one of the first chapters tries to describe what a local newspaper was and the relationship between what a newspaper did and the society around it. And it was a society of clubs, societies, sporting groups, flower shows, as well as magistrates' courts and councils and hospital authorities. And your job as a local newspaper was to try and capture all of it and... I think those two papers that I worked for were fondly held in respect by the local community. How, how many people were on the Cambridge Evening News when you were there? There would have been 20 reporters. How many do you think are on there now? That's a good question. I don't know. Um, it won't be double it figures, is, is it? I doubt it, and it's also no longer a daily paper. No, of course it's a not. weekly paper. Like the Post. But the local press has almost literally been decimated. Can you see any way back? Wow, now we're jumping to the, the, well, the big question. Oh, yes, yeah. I, I know we are, but just in the context of, of, of local, because the internet really should have been a bigger friend of local news in a way, but again, the infrastructure didn't, didn't appear quick enough. Well, I think by the time I had finished the book, and we had been through sort of numerous economic crises in news, I have begun to think that you have to think of news as a kind of sort of public service. Yes. So think of it as like an ambulance service or as a police service. And if you think of it like that, then certainly you need, I think, journalists and you need people who can be there in society to say, well, this is true, this isn't true, this happened, this didn't happen. Whether that is a, a commercial proposition in 2018 or whether it will be in 2028, I don't think anybody knows. But I think we have to decide what it is before we work out how it's going to be financed. What we're we going to aim for. Ambition. The Moved from Cambridge Evening News through through the ranks. Did you go straight from there to The Guardian? 
I did in 1979. Well, just give us an idea of what that was like. My father moved from the locals to a national. He, he started on the Shipley Times and then via the whole Daily Mail and the Sheffield Telegraph, he ended up on the, on the Daily Telegraph. And so I have an understanding yeah. of what yeah. a huge... Every local newspaper man in those days and woman dreamt mm. of, of mm. getting onto Fleet mm. Street. Just give us an idea of what that was like. Uh, well, it took about a year to, to jump ship, and that was a year of going to take imaginary days off and go down and shifting on the... Everyone knows standard. that you're doing it, don't they, really? Well, I, I suppose so. I mean, <laughs> you had to say that you were... Looking after your mum or something like that. And I didn't get a job on the Evening Standard. I didn't get a job on the Times. I did get a job on the Guardian. And it was a wonderful paper. It was a, it was a wonderful paper to write on. You know, there are papers that are known as subspapers, you know, where you basically file the facts and it's put into house style. Mm. And The Guardian was kind of the opposite. You, they respect, respect I, I've used the past tense because I'm no longer there, they respected yes. writing. And from the moment I got there, I, I just thought it was the, the luckiest thing on earth that I ended up there. You, you're not a news junkie, though. I liked... I did like reporting, I don't think I was the best reporter in the newsroom Why not? by uh, any manner of means. Why not? I don't think I had the personal self-confidence that I think you need as a journalist but you've just to described ask Sorry. anybody anything. Uh, even if it is... I mean, the best callous. reporters I've worked with just have the, the self-confidence to walk into any situation, any pub, any bar, any, any situation. And I, I might have more of that now. I didn't have it then. That's interesting. And, I mean, self-confidence on the one hand, it, it could be a borderline sociopathic trait on another. Some, sometimes they go hand in hand. They do, don't they? Mm. You're, you're describing essentially qualms and conscience. Well, I think that's actually quite a profound thing about being a reporter because it, it, it's, in, in a way I, found, I certainly found this when I was 22, ringing up the, picking up the phone and asking people quite direct and personal things doesn't come naturally, um, or didn't come naturally to me. No. Or knocking on a, the front door of somebody who's just lost their daughter in a bus accident is actually quite a weird thing to do. But, yes. uh, and I think actually the people who find that easiest are maybe <laughs> a bit odd in some ways. Do you, I, I just really, I, I won't dwell on this because I find it fascinating, but I'm not, I'm not sure everybody else will. But I'm exactly the same. Um, one of my first jobs on the William Hickey column in the Express was to phone Susan Crossland and ask her if she'd known that Anthony had had a gay affair at Cambridge in the 30s and I didn't mm. know much about either of mm. them but that was, I phoned the speaking clock five times and told the editor that, that she, before I finally plucked up and I've mm. wondered since whether or not actually everybody else was frightened too but you don't admit it until perhaps the, no. the, 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 the later in your career no, no. when well, you're no longer trying to front it up good question i mean I, <laughs> there were certainly people i worked with who were fearless yes uh, stroke psychopathic <laughs> yes they, they would um ask anybody anything and almost revel in it almost revel in mm. it. yeah but, um, but a tiny minority yes. probably yeah i think most people struggle a bit and it may be it may be quite actually a profound thing about the way newspapers are run almost like you know one hears about the army being run on these lines that yes you have to get people sort of battle-hardened and prepared to do anything for the sake of the newspaper otherwise it's so counter to human instinct that you would never do it which actually makes sense of some of the stuff you cover in the book that was done by other newspapers when you look at the blind loyalty attached to the phone hacking exposés and the way that journalists with whom you would previously presumably have broken bread and been quite chummy, once those battle lines were drawn, it wasn't about the issue or the ethics, it was about which team you were on. 
after Nick Davis kind of blew the lid off the whole thing. Yes. So, so Nick Davis's reporting of the News of the World was, in fact, directed by people who work in the News of the, yeah. news of the World newsroom who became, I think, repelled by what they were being asked to do. And it was a culture of bullying and fear. Uh, and eventually it just became too much and they looked to tell somebody what was going on. And it was one of those stories where, you're right, uh, I knew people, as it were, on the other side and had been out drinking with them and eating with them. So it wasn't so much which team you were on. It, it was it was clearly, to my mind, a legitimate story. Mm. If that had been a bank or an oil company, nobody would have thought it was odd for a newspaper to be writing that story. And it was in, in my position as editor, it was one of those situations where if you've got a reporter who has put his soul on the line in order to do a really hard, uh, at times quite brutal story, then you just have to back him. You have to, you have a kind of duty to the facts to get them out of the open. Can you remember when he first brought it to you? Oh, yeah. Well, so Nick and I had worked, we joined the Guardian on the same day in 1979, and he was a much better reporter than I was. Uh, and we had sort of stayed lifelong friends. And it was almost, he thought this was the end of his career. He thought he'd done crime, he'd done drugs, he'd done the police, he'd done education. Before he went, he wanted to do one last story about power, the power of the media. And he came and he did one stab at it, which ended in a book called Flat Earth News. Uh, which was which had started as a look into what went wrong over the media's reporting of Iraq. And then about two years later, came into my office in The Guardian, and we later called this the heart attack conversation, <laughs> because he was he knew what he'd got. And he closed the door and said, I think I have a story of a criminal cover-up at the world's most powerful media organisation. And it was obvious that this story was nothing but trouble. We both knew that, and it was going to be difficult, scary, but, you know, it was just a story that had to be done. You say that. I mean, not everybody would have done it. Also, I mean, for people not fully versed in, in Fleet Street folklore, newspapers often have agreements to lay off each other. I mean, most obviously, the the Mail promised not to write about Richard Desmond's mm. pornography mm. empire as long as he, he promised not to write about the sort of Hitler support of previous owners mm. of the Daily Mail. You, I mean, this is this is really... Stepping out of the pack, isn't it, when you go after it, one of them? It was, and I, I do write in the book about the fact that in 20 years I think I was threatened by most of the media groups mm. um, who didn't like being written about, and they, they thought it was bad form and they thought we should be circling our wagons and that we were all under attack and that we should be pointing outwards, not inwards. And I could see that argument, and I like some of these people. But in the other bit of my brain, I just, I, you know, I kept on thinking, well, you know, as journalists, the story we tell is that this is a tremendously powerful force in society. And there's no other force in society that we would allow to pass without scrutiny. And it would be a very odd thing to say, well, we're, we wouldn't write a story like that, which we would write about any other sector, mm. because it happens to be our own. So, I mean, it would be interesting. I've never gone around asking them. It would no. be interesting if any of my fellow editors would have spiked a story like that and said, well, we don't want to do that because it's about our own. When did you begin to, well, almost immediately by the sounds of it, you appreciated the scale of the story that was 
that yeah. was in the offing. When did you sort of, or, or Nick Davis, put the call in to, to let them know that you were going to press? We would have given News International, as it then was, I don't know, half a day, a day. And they were tremendously aggressive mm. in response. It was like a sort of blitzkrieg of attacks. And I think they thought they had us because by the end of that week, I, I remember they thought they were winning. And one of the reasons they thought they were winning is that I think we published on something like the Monday or Tuesday. And round about Thursday, the police said, oh, well, we'll look into this. And I thought, well, that's positive. The, you know, the, the police um, didn't look into this properly first time round. And then later the same day, <laughs> the police came out and said, oh, we looked into it and there's nothing in it. Um, <laughs> okay, so it was the yes. shortest police inquiry in history. And and that was, in a sense, part of the story, that, because it was then two years before, before the whole thing started falling apart. But mm. I do remember thinking we... We think of Britain as a sort of comfortable democracy, and in a d democracy you have all kinds of checks and balances, and when things go wrong, there will be some part of the establishment state that will act independently. Mm. Uh, and I looked at this story and I saw MPs running for cover. I saw the police come out and say they weren't going to investigate it. The press regulator not only didn't investigate it, they came out and blamed The Guardian or came close to blaming The Guardian. Uh, other journalists didn't want to cover this story. And I realised that people were frightened. People were frightened of the Murdoch uh, empire. And that was perfectly rational fear because the Murdoch empire, as we now know, was employing criminals to dig up the dirt on their targets. And people knew that at some level. And that was quite a frightening thing. It was quite a frightening thing to think, well, actually, there is a bit of this country that feels untouchable. Mafioso. It's not like the mafia, but it was certainly an organisation that felt it had impunity, I think. Were you frightened, personally? I remember looking in the shaving mirror and thinking, am I up for this? And there were moments when Nick, who had very good sources within News Corp said, we have to be careful and I think your house may be bugged, he said at one point. And I had the place swept by somebody, it turned out, had connections with News Corp <laughs> and who fed it back that he had done that. And so, yeah, that was uncomfortable. And you must have been supremely confident that you didn't have any of the proverbial skeletons in your own closet because they'd have come after those with glee. Well, they might have done. They, I assume, at some level within the organisation, they knew what the truth was. And it would have been, I think, a very dangerous thing to have tried personally to smear me or Nick, which is not to say they weren't tempted. Sure. And uh, I, I, mean, I don't really want to ask the next question because... Well, I do, because I really want to know what your answer to it is, but it involves a, an uncomfortable presumption... Because I, I suspect you're surprised that the aftermath has not been more profound than the story merited. I know that Andy Coulson went to jail, mm. but one looks at, at what News Corp mm. is now, and it's pretty close to business as usual. Well, I, um, I mean, a few of them went to jail. Yes. Um, there was the Leveson inquiry, whatever we think of that. I would be amazed if that kind of criminality is now happening within newsrooms. I mean, I, I do think it put an absolute full stop to that. 
Yes, of course. But, but I'm I thinking think more it, about the, the philosophy it, of the people and the identity of the people involved. Well, I, I do feel Fleet Street is a cleaner place than yes. it was before that. So I, I think that is good. I mean, Murdoch is an extraordinary figure. I mean, he's a, he's a power to himself. He runs that company in a way that no other company would run. So any other company, imagine this was Volkswagen or BP or a disgraced bank. And somebody had stood up, the Prime Minister had stood up in the House of Commons and said, these people are not fit and should never, ever again run a company. Uh, and you went through a series of trials. And at the end of it, the chairman said, well, fuck that. We're going to put the same CEO and chair. And <laughs> chair That's kind of what I'm referring to. Who happens to. to be my son yeah. back in charge of the company as a massive two fingers. I think that is true. I think he is still a very, very powerful, globally powerful figure. And he behaves exactly how he wants to behave. And that tells you something about his company. What do you think motivates him personally? Well, he, I, think, I think that's a complicated question. I mean, I've, I only, I've only ever met him once, so I, I can't claim to have any special insights. I, I think in fairness to him, he loves news. I think he loves news. I think he loves journalism. And there are some proprietors of whom one couldn't say that. So in a, in a kind of way, his organisations are not corrupt and he finances news and he keeps newspapers afloat even when they're not very or not at all profitable. So I, I, I think you have to acknowledge that is part of the story. But another part of the story, I think, is sheer power. There's a pattern in each territory in which he operates. He usually has a posh paper. Mm. He usually has a TV station and he has a tabloid and... The posh paper is there to, uh, to I think, gain respectability. Mm. The TV station is there to make the money. And the tabloid is there to, I think, intimidate politicians put the and on. to put the frighteners on people. And it works pretty well. I mean, it's worked for him very it's well. It's worked so very well in Australia yeah. this week, hasn't it? Essentially. Yeah. It's a, yeah. It's a modus well, he's operandi. got an extraordinary power in, uh, in Australia. Uh, just thinking about that, it wasn't really an ethical dilemma. It was simply a question of whether or not you had the stomach to to pursue that story i'll take you back to cambridge when the first scoop i've read that you secured involved an expose of the founder of the orchestra in which you played that's <laughs> yeah, is that I, right uh, not quite i no. wasn't playing well, print the legend but, um, <laughs> but it was an extraordinary story of a, of a he was a kind of walter mitty figure right. who who it t- turned out had worked as a brain surgeon in denmark Without ever studying medicine, I mean, he, it was that sort of degree of hopelessness. You know, he would he would do these mad things. He was booked for a series of organ recitals in all the cathedrals in England without being able to play the organ. Um, <laughs> and he turned up in Cambridge, found it actually a rather good symphony orchestra, but it made no money, and so he got hopelessly into debt. So it wasn't he wasn't necessarily a bad man, but he was a very interesting man. Sounds like a walking anxiety dream. So he, you, you just stumbled across yeah, the background. Yeah. So it wasn't that much of an ethical dilemma then. You didn't have a personal no. responsibility to him. But it does, I mean, it, it speaks of you being very conscious of morality within journalism from, from pretty much from the beginning. Do, do you think that that was rare as you made your well, way? Well, no, I think, I think, I mean, I think journalism is probably like all professions. You've got people of great morality and, and seriousness and, and people who aren't. Did feel once I became an editor, a quite frightening sense of power. Mm. You're in charge of a, especially in this country, where you're in charge of the, the news gathering bit, but also the opinion bit. 
not true in America, where those two things are very, very separate. And you're almost, you're not completely unregulated, but you're pretty unregulated. And you can see it in some newspapers where the, the people who are running newspapers almost relish that kind of power. And I think I was the opposite. I, f I felt very, very nervous about it. And one of the first things I did at The Guardian was to appoint a reader's editor mm. on American Lines. And that was a deliberate attempt to allow readers to have a channel of correction and clarification without having to go via the editor. Because obviously the editor is the person who's most invested and might be responsible in the first place for the mistake. And that giving away of power seemed to be a very significant thing. And it was the first of one or two things I did to try and give away power or disperse power. Why did you want to be editor? That is a good question. Peter Preston, who was editor before me, plucked me from nowhere. I mean, I'd never edited. And The Guardian wanted to start a Saturday magazine because The Independent had one and it was proving rather successful. And so he just took me out to the pub one day and said, you're going to launch this thing. And I had no idea what I was doing. But I really enjoyed it. And he must have thought I was quite good at it. Why, why do you think? What do you think he spotted? Because you were, you'd gone to The Observer by this point, hadn't you, to be TV critic? I went off to The Observer to be a TV critic. And I went to America for six months to work as a Washington correspondent and came back. In about um, 88 we are now. To that launch. is 88. Yes. And I think we launched the weekend magazine around about 89. What do you think he saw in you? What did he see in me? That is a good question. I think... I must have had good ideas for pieces. I knew good writing from bad writing. I think writers, I hope writers, enjoyed writing for me, so I handled them well. And then I worked with one or two mentors who taught me about design and literally about the craft of editing and sub-editing. So it wasn't so much that I was desperate to be an editor. No, it was rather surprised to be asked. Mm. Um, uh, in 1990. Five. I'd been editing for well about 15 years by then, at the point that he stepped down. And again, I, hadn't, I certainly didn't have a lifetime ambition thinking that I was going to be editor of The Guardian. But by then, I knew that I enjoyed editing enough to think that it was worth having a go at it. More from Alan in a moment, but here's Russell Kane to tell you about his new show on Joe. Hi, Russell Kane here, and I'm hosting a brand new podcast for Joe. Boys Don't Cry, where I get a bunch of men together and force them to talk about the things we never talk about. Body hair, body shape, why do girls only fancy bastards? All the things we worry about but never discuss. Oh, and I'll also have a girl helping me each week just to make sure we're not talking rubbish. So go to wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, wherever, and download Boys Don't Cry now. Thank you, Russell. Now, back to Alan Rossbridger. It's, it's a curious process by which you become editor of The Guardian. Not a million miles away from what Jeremy Corbyn suggested the other day all newspapers should do. There is a form of election, isn't there? There's a well, it's, it's, it's called an indicative ballot. I don't mm. know if that is a phrase that exists anywhere else in the world. <laughs> so the, the staff say this is the person... An advisory we, referendum. Yeah, can't, <laughs> don't get started. <laughs> no, right. don't, but. Um, the staff say this is the person we want. And it, the, the Scott Trust, which owns The Guardian, can, of course, say, well, actually, we disagree. We think it should be this. But it would be quite difficult, I think, to go against the wishes of the staff. Your former editor at the Cambridge Evening News has said that, to be honest, I didn't think Alan would have the grit to become a national editor. Well, what do you think he meant? Uh, well, probably that when he knew me, I was a very unpolished article straight from university and was very green behind the ears. So 
I can understand why he would say that. Where did your grit come from? Well, th- almost the moment I became editor, I was hit with about four or five really quite major libel actions. <laughs> uh, so there was Neil Hamilton, who was a Tory MP who had been involved in cash for questions, taking cash in order to ask questions in the House of Commons, mm. being paid by Mohammed Al-Fayed, the owner of the of Harrods. There was the Police Federation who had won something like 95 libel actions against newspapers. It was just a sort of way of building extensions for police officers' garages. And <laughs> there was a, a guy who was a cult buster. And then there was Jonathan Aitken who course, yeah. resigned from the camera. So there were these massive libel actions. And uh, the effect was to subtract me from being somebody who had been a reasonably anonymous reporter and editor to being something of a public figure. Yes. People always assumed that The Guardian was on a left-wing crusade to attack these people on the right. And that certainly taught me grit. You found it within yourself. Yeah, you just had to develop another skin. And it was a test of whether you had enough steel in your core, moving from grit to steel. Mm. And I suppose I must have done. Because Roger Alton said something similar, interesting as well, who you worked very closely with for a number of years. He's editor of The Observer on your watch. Alan is admired but not hugely loved. People who don't see his ruthless side aren't getting him right. Is, is ruthless a word you'd apply to yourself? Well, again, I think professionally, yes, when necessary. I think I'm as unruthless and, and as clubbable and as anybody else. But if you are heading a news organisation and you have 600 staff and you have a kind of responsibility to the story, then you certainly have at times to be ruthless in, in the defence of the story. And that organisational, that institutional defence of journalism, I think, is one of the themes that I try to draw out in the book, that the the institution of a newspaper or news organisation and its preparedness to promote and defend a story, if you haven't got that, then the story is worth nothing because, yeah. because people will pick you off. And if you can't defend the story, and that might cost you millions of pounds and a lot of sleepless nights, if you can't do that, then the story is worth nothing. This is where the future is really frightening, though, isn't it? Because the metrics by which the success of a story is measured now are so binary and statistical. I mean, almost the polar opposite of what The Guardian's values have been, whereas from what you've just said, it's the faith you have in a story, the belief you have in its importance that defines the size of a story, whereas almost everywhere you go, it's as if the management consultants have taken over and it's the number of clicks and likes and shares that a story gets. And, and, I mean, this is the bedrock of the crisis that journalism faces. Yeah, that that's a complicated question too. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm not expecting a 140-character so, answer. <laughs> so on one hand, as Guardian leaders used to say, on the one hand, 20 years ago, we had no idea who was reading what story. Yeah, journalism was a very imprecise art. We had no idea what advertising worked and what didn't. And you could say that put a special onus on journalistic judgment. And, you know, you were taught to believe that editors had any, a real gut feeling for mm. you know, Middle England or whatever. And then suddenly you could measure. That happened, you know, relatively recently, about six or seven years ago. People could measure exactly who was reading, not not only who was reading what, but where they lived, how far down the story they read when they when they abandoned the story. How long they read it for? We'll, we'll do that with this. They'll be able, they'll be able to tell me <laughs> next week how, how, yeah. how you compare to Gary Lineker for, them, for how far into the interview <laughs> yep, people, well, people persisted. Win that one. And so, I now meet 
editors who use those metrics. I mean, when when we first saw these metrics, we thought, oh, my, we can't let the newsroom see that, you know, because there were some people who weren't being read. Um, (laughs) And what do you do with those metrics? Uh, Harry Evans, the great editor of the Sunday Times, used to say that a a newspaper campaign was only working when the readers were desperately bored of it. And there were campaigns that we ran for years in which you knew almost nobody was reading it, but it was important that you wrote these stories. So if your only metric is eyeballs, then you're going to miss something. If, on the other hand, you're wasting journalistic resources writing stuff that absolutely nobody cares about, that's also wrong. So you have to learn how to use these metrics and know when to use your judgment and sometimes to do things that that appear financially reckless and indefensible but which are going to, over time, build the reputation of a paper for being a certain kind of paper. That's funny because after your first two sentences, I was thinking that the, the actual verb to edit has ceased to apply. But what you've described is an evolution of editing, so that the things you're weighing up as an editor aren't the same as they were when you couldn't count the number of eyeballs on every individual story. You're trying to balance out the the popularity with the importance. Exactly, yeah. And uh, there were times where, I mean, let's say we had spent, you know, two or three months, two or three weeks on Mm. an investigation, and you would publish that with a great fanfare at nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, there were days when by lunchtime I would look at the screen and that would have vanished. And I'd go out to the news desk and say, what's happened? And they'd say, well, nobody's reading it. And so you had to sort of educate people and say, well, look, I I don't care if nobody's reading it. (laughs) That's taken three weeks of our life, that piece. Um, And it's really important that it's there as a symbol that we believe in this story. You can't just get rid of it by lunchtime. (laughs) But on other occasions, it was quite salutary to realise that these things that we as journalists thought were incredibly important actually nobody cared about and on reflection you thought well actually maybe we don't care about it either it's i I'd possibly a bit of a crass example but when i was doing radio phone-ins during the phone hacking story the phones didn't light up as we say mm. until mm. until the millie dollar mm. angle came mm. out people the average punter didn't mm. seem to care much if at all until that mm. element of the mm. story came out which well i fear that's true um that at for a while, it looked just like sort of rich celebrities yes. whining about publicity they didn't like. Uh, and it was only when you introduced somebody who patently wasn't a rich celebrity, a murdered child, that, that people woke up and took an interest. And, and then I think they got it. They thought, mm. actually, this is repulsive. And then, you know, we, we learned of war heroes and people had been involved in accidents. And, and then you realised this was not just about celebrities it was it was part of the routine of journalism it had entered into newsrooms in a way that was quite disturbing we should establish for for for, for younger viewers your pioneering role in internet journalism you took a view very early that as we mentioned at the outset that the the, the future was online and you took a view very early that people weren't going to have to pay for it do, do you still think that was the right decision i thought the internet would destroy the essentially Victorian system of manufacturing newspapers and distributing them and trains and wholesalers and little boys being poked out of bed at eight o'clock in the morning to deliver news. I mean, I just thought that was a supply chain which couldn't survive, and I I still broadly think that. I think think weekly newspapers may have a longer shelf life than daily newspapers, but I think at some point it will become uneconomic to print newspapers. So that bit, I think, was right. On on the payment side, 
I'm more neutral if people are willing to pay. And at the moment, the last survey I saw showed that 93% of Britons weren't willing to pay. But if people are willing to pay, then I think that's fine. The problem was for The Guardian that we started off with quite a small print circulation. We had Mm. about 400,000. It turned out two-thirds of our readers were abroad. They really? were They were in the rest of the world, uh, and particularly in America, about a third of them were there. And the commercial side were very interested in breaking to America because there are an awful lot of Americans and they tend to be richer than Brits. Uh, it's a better advertising market. But there was no way on earth of breaking into America by asking Americans to pay for something they were unfamiliar with. So we went down the free route and... I see The Guardian is still free, so the, you know, the people who are now running it obviously think there is still a commercial model in providing free content to a very large audience. And it, the Times doesn't do it. Increasingly, American newspapers, even magazines, even the New Statesman's gone behind a paywall yeah. now. You, you don't think that The Guardian's sort of swimming, still swimming against the tide, um, even though it was the first fish in the water? Um, well, I think if you can be open, there are tremendous democratic goods, I mean, benefits, What do I mean by that? I mean that in 2018, the capability of generating information, Mm. good, bad, indifferent, malign, false, horrid, hate-filled, is so enormous and universal. And that is what most people now experience. So, yes, you can, particularly if you have a, a richer audience. You can say, well, actually, we are going to go behind a paywall and we're going to put our news in a kind of gated community. Yes. So what you end up in America, I mean, the New York Times is the paper with the, you know, the metered paywall. About 3% of Americans see the New York Times. So right. 97% of Americans don't. And I can't help thinking that that may be necessary. It's the only, maybe the only economic model that will work for the New York Times, which is a very fine newspaper. But is that increasing the polarity of society when 97% of people don't have good information Mm. and 3% do. So you then go back and, I think, revisit models like the BBC, which seem to me ever more vital, where you have got a universal source of news which should be reliable and which everybody can use as a kind of sort of tent peg in the ground of uh, reliability. We will move on shortly to to Edward Snowden and WikiLeaks, but I'll bring the new book in now, if I may. When did it first start taking shape in your mind? People should know that you stepped down from The Guardian in 2015. Yeah. You moved into the the realms of academe. Yeah. When did this book start taking shape in your head? When I got to Oxford, I I took over as chair of the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism, which is an organisation which takes fellows from all the way around the world who come to Oxford and, and... think about journalism. And I became aware of of all the academic work around journalism, which is really fascinating and some of it very fine indeed. And some of it is pretty jargon-ridden and, frankly, no journalist is ever going to read it. And I was aware, I became aware of a sort of literature about the theory of journalism and about the theory of digital. And I thought, well, I would just like to write down what it was like, what it was like to be at the centre of this, because we had no idea what we were doing. Um, it's quite an odd omission in the canon. Though, yeah, it is. I was amazed you, that yes. nobody seems to have done it. I mean, it, how, how great would it be to have 
Gutenberg writing down yeah. what was it like to live in the yeah. in the fifteenth century um, <laughs> at, at the time of the invention of movable type because that was you know the one that everyone references as being the previous greatest revolution and so that's how it began. I just thought well, let let's write it down and as I was writing it. You know, we had Brexit, we had Donald Trump, we had fake news, we had Facebook. So all these things were happening that actually made me think this is actually a very timely mm. book to write. Well, it, it's timely, I mean, in that sense, because Brexit and Trump, it's hard to imagine either of them having happened without the internet having mm. corrupted traditional news. I mean, doing something very different from traditional news, not doing news at all, in fact. <laughs> well, the, the, the big... I had this visual image in my mind as I was writing the book of a society that had been arranged vertically and that had fallen over onto its side. So, so what am I by that? I mean, I think this is probably true of, of lots of institutions. Yes. But newspapers, if you owned a printing press, and not many people did, you were almost literally above your readers and you would hand down your news to them and they would hand up their money. And it was a very hierarchical process. Cut to 2018 or 2016, mm. and everything's now working horizontally. There are billions of pieces of information passing horizontally and almost widespread contempt for institutions that look like vertical institutions. And I think that's, that's the problem that news has. And if you're a journalist and you were up on the platform... Trying to see this flow of information and not feel contempt for it is is hard, and and, and to work out how to insert yourself into that uh, process, to, and not to feel sort of undervalued, you know, your skills as the expert journalist. So that was the big picture that started forming in my head. But nevertheless, I thought, well, this is going to be an easy book to write because. In the end, journalism is the answer. You know, I've been a journalist for 35 years, 40 years. We need more journalism. Yes. And then Brexit happened, and I saw what passed for journalism. And I thought, well, I, I can't say that is better than this horizontal flow of information, um, because actually a lot of it is crap. And then Trump came along with his own obsessions about fake news. And by the time I got to the end of the book... <laughs> We were facing a big crisis. Yes. How do you know whether anything's true any longer? I suppose where I ended up is thinking that, well, if journalism is going to present itself as the answer, then it has to just be better. If you're saying journalism is a system for finding the truth and all the other stuff is rubbish and you can't rely on it and it's full of fakery, then journalism better be convincing enough to persuade people that we are the answer. But it currently isn't. Well, it isn't. It. I mean... I mean, I don't want to get too sort of meta about all this, but then you start looking at the word journalism and you yes. say, well, The Sun is journalism and the FT is journalism. Mm. Fox News is journalism and the New York Times is journalism. The Daily Mail is journalism and The Times is journalism. And they're all completely different mm. ideas about what journalism is. And I think if you're a member of the public, you think, well, you know, what is this thing called journalism? They all call themselves journalists, yes. but they do very different things. And... Maybe we have to start thinking more seriously about why journalism. And you get back to this question of the public interest. You know, is this a public service? Is it a way of making money? If it's a public service, then what is it that we're writing for? And who should that, be paying for it? Yeah, precisely. So this n notion of the vertical becoming the horizontal, mm. do you think – the first newspaper really to invite comments on almost everything was yours. Mm. It was on your watch mm. for me – 
I've thought about this quite a lot. That that was a very early step towards the sort of false equivalence that your horizontal paradigm describes, wasn't it? Because people who would once have been shunned in the pub mm, mm. could see there, and it became toxic quite quickly, the Guardian's below the line comments. Well, it, it did on some subjects. Yes, the, the obvious ones, yeah. the so ones that the, arguably have led to Trump and Brexit. Yeah, so uh, you know, on the environment pages, on the science mm. pages, you had often excellent discussions. Mm. If it was Israel-Palestine, you'd need a team of moderators to just keep the lid on. <laughs> and I don't think anyone has fully worked out how to do this. On the other hand, I, I don't really agree with the news organisations that have just said, oh, well, we tried that. We tried talking to our readers. Our readers are morons. They're horrible. <laughs> We're going to switch off the comments and they can go and talk somewhere else because we don't like them. I think it's too early. There's things only been going for 10 years. Let's try and try and work out how to deal with that because at their best, as you know, the comment threads. I mean, you you do a lot of phone ins. I yes, mean, they, they can be brilliant. They it can be brilliant. Having, it's faith yeah. in, the, in in humankind really that you need, isn't it, to persevere with these sort of things? Um, and speaking of faith in humankind, the the, the WikiLeaks story, which is another huge hmm. section of the book, and in, in many ways, that's that's the one that ties together almost all of the themes of the book, because it was about new modes of information being mm, delivered. Mm. It was about ethical dilemma. Mm. But was it also actually, even though you possibly didn't realise at the time, about some form of manipulation of the Western media? I, I mean, Assange is a fascinating character who presumably mm. your feelings towards him have gone from A to Z. Mixed. Yes. Well, I think they haven't gone from A to Z. I think A to Z were, or from, <laughs> were always there yes, from, yes. from the start, and we always had a, a tricky relationship. But he, he came to you because he had... Well, we, we found him, actually. Right. We, we nicked Nick Davis again. Nick's theory was that journalists are hopeless at spotting stories. Yes. And he said, I always, go, I always ignore the front page of a newspaper because editors are stupid. And, the, <laughs> the, and he, on page five of some newspaper, he found the story of this man on the run who right. had, you know, in his briefcase, he had the biggest spill of leaks that the world had ever seen. So he thought, well, that's that's a good story. Mm. And he set out to find him and persuade him to uh, share his work with The Guardian. And by and large, I think the, the work that we did together, I have to qualify that because he went off and did a lot of work on his own. Yes, um, of course. But I think the work we did together, along with The New York Times, is still valuable and important work. But you're right to say that that, that idea of... Almost information anarchy mm. is not what newspapers do, really. And so that, that tension between the edited version of the facts and the let's just chuck it all out and let people choose is an unresolved tension. It is. I, I mean, it led, of course, to claims that you'd endangered British servicemen and women or, or spies. Keith Vaz asked you that sort of bastion of moral rectitude, whether you loved your country. That, well, that was over Snowden. Oh, yes, which was coming a, yeah. on to that next. But it, they're, they're, they're of a piece, aren't they, the yeah. two stories, the, the Snowden and the, yeah. and the WikiLeaks stuff. And that's why the tension remains, because the right to know is in contradiction with the right to well, keep it's, things quiet. Yes, it's interesting. It sort of comes back to this question of gatekeepers. Yes. So if, you know, as a journalist, your role was a gatekeeper because... Well, you decide the what goes in tomorrow's gates, paper. You know, yeah, absolutely. Press, that yes. was the gate. So people didn't know information. And 
at at his most extreme, Julian Assange was the opposite. He had a big bucket of information. Mm. He just tipped it all out and said, well, you, you, you be the judge. And I found myself, again, while writing this book, that Christopher Steele memorandum about Trump and what he got up to in Russia. I found myself very conflicted about that because part of me thought, well, what a newspaper does is to sift the truth from the untruth and only print the truth. And the newspapers have been sitting on this document for mm. weeks, it turned out. And I felt quite cross. <laughs> yeah. I thought, actually, why not just let me be the judge? Um, and that's what BuzzFeed eventually did. They, they published it. I'm not saying they published it brilliantly, but they published sure. it. And I found myself thinking, well, who says they should be the gatekeeper? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So I found myself turning and thinking, well, why won't they trust me to read the document? And that sort of took me into tension with Julian Assange yes, because you know, that's what he did. And I said, well, no, what we do, we're journalists, we, yeah. we edit. And so I think there, I mean, that's the whole thing between the the tower and the square, the vertical and the horizontal. Yes. If you are going to say, well, society needs gatekeepers, then it's reasonable of society to say, well, who who says that you're the gatekeeper? Yes. You know, why are you so brilliant? Why are you so moral? Why are you so ethical that you've set yourself up as a gatekeeper? That's the change context. And it is completely the change context. Mm. I mean, also perhaps the denigration of expertise is, is part of that as well, because the short answer would be, well, we've spent 30 years weighing up what's right and wrong, what's good and bad, what, what should get through the gate and what shouldn't. So, of course, we're the people that should be trusted rather than... Yeah, all, all, yes, it's, it's about expertise, it's about judgment, it's about ethical stand. I mean, moving on to Snowden, there were times... When I said to the British government, you ought to be so lucky that mm. you're dealing with us. Mm. Because if, if, uh, because we're talking to you. you know, yeah. We're talking to you. We are editing this stuff. We're this was leaked diplomatic conversations. Cables. This, this was you. stuff that was going on on the ground in Afghanistan. At the well, that, that, was, that was WikiLeaks, yeah. And, and, but, but, um, but, and actually working with the New York Times was quite a revelation in a way because they, they were much more punctilious than most British news organisations in getting in touch with the White House straight away okay. and putting stuff to them. The, the Snowden stuff was, a, was surveillance. It was about how much the government was watching yeah. people. Yeah. So, that, I mean, that's the, the definition of both meanings of the phrase public interest, isn't it? I mean, the, the public interest as in what the public are interested in and the public interest as in the interests, protecting the interests of the public. I mean, did you, did you sit on stuff... At all, or did you adopt? Oh, yeah. I mean, we, I, so you are still aware of things that I'm time not aware when of. We got to the end of the Snowden material. I think we had touched about three or four percent of it. So we uh, we made very major decisions about what we thought was in the public interest and what wasn't. Would you but, be the but, same editor now? Because it's fascinating what you say. You say I don't know whether you realised it, but you, you you kind of there was a re resentment's the wrong word, but the first time that you felt you didn't have your hand on the tiller. Was, was during the um, the Christopher Steele thing, and then mm. you spoke like a reader rather than a writer. Mm. You spoke like a reader mm. for the first time in a in a whole hour mm. rather than a mm. than an editor. So, if you were doing Snowden now, would you be the same man? I think so. I mean, I, I think you're right. It's quite salutary to be a reader and not an editor because you you do see things differently. But I was also very conscious. Snowden was the most extreme version of why you have to have an independent press. Um, yes. And who gets to determine the national interest? And 
I thought long and hard about that, and I thought of things like Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, so mm. that the states in the state will always say this is not in the national interest. Yes, yeah, so they'd, they'd happily sit on almost everything. They would, and so it seems to be important to have the fifth estate, or the fourth estate. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. There's a film called The Fifth Estate about WikiLeaks, but the fourth estate, a separate estate which is capable of exercising its judgment, and so I, I think. If I did Snowden again, I would not do things very differently. I would do some things differently, but not very differently. So it's not substantively different. No. Does your book end on an optimistic note, Alan? It, it does to this extent that I do think society needs people who can fulfil that role of, of, of saying this is true, of bearing witness. This is true, that's not true. This happened, that didn't happen. I think we realise that more than ever. Whether there is a commercial model for that or not, I think we don't know. And I thought I didn't agree with all that Jeremy Corbyn said the other day, but but I think he was right to focus on what kind of information societies need to be good societies. And you have to think, well, if if the market can't provide that, mm. what is going to be the mechanism? And I think that's a good question to raise. And there are all kinds of things now that are happening in which foundations are sponsoring journalism there is there are people are putting their hands in their pockets and paying for journalism that's happening with the guardian but it also happens with npr in america mm. uh, there are organizations that are treated like charities or non-profit organizations and i think that is a model which really needs to be looked at so yes i'm optimistic that journalism is more necessary than ever but I don't think the sort of economic route to that is going to be a simple one. Alan Rusbridger, thank you very much indeed. Do you know, we've just spent an hour talking to the former editor of The Guardian without once mentioning Seamus Milne, who is, of course, the, the eminent grease behind Jeremy Corbyn and who was, I think, working for Alan Rusbridger for pretty much the duration of his editorship, which is an indication of how much ground we did cover and how much more ground we could have covered if we'd been here for so long. I wonder if... I wonder if we're going to see editorial careers like that again, actually, in our time. If you enjoyed that, then you might want to check out one of the, again, a, a journalist of, of my own generation this time, but who I think is is a very, very rare talent. Krishnan Guru Murthy's episode of Unfiltered. Here's a clip. So why did Robert Downey Jr. call you a syphilitic parasite? What happened with that interview was it came after the Quentin Tarantino interview. Which had also... Which ended, had also yeah. gone viral, but which, you know, which had some of the movie studios a bit wary of me, but not... Sure. You know. I got an email a couple of days before that interview saying, what's this interview going to be about? Normally I don't respond to those sorts of uh, requests, but because of the Tarantino thing, I where you asked for people who don't know, you asked Tarantino whether he felt responsible for real violence by portrayal or, or well, the link. I said, the I link said, is between, there a link between yeah. violence and real violence? He didn't want to have that conversation. He got very angry and lost his temper, and it went viral. And yes. he, he said, "I'm <laughs> shutting your butt down," and everybody loved that phrase. <laughs> and and it went mad. I think he. I've since heard that he didn't think he'd handled that particularly. Well. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I, so I, I went into that interview basically. So I, I, I responded to this email from a producer saying, it's Robert Downey Jr. Of course, we want to hear the story of how he went from drugs and prison to yes. being the most bankable movie star in the world. And we'll talk about Captain America. Mm. And that's how I went into that interview. I think that message was never passed on to him. So he just so he, expected Captain he America. He just expected a, a junket interview with people blowing smoke up his ass. And 
he didn't get it. So do go back and check that out along with the rest of the back catalogue. While you're there, subscribe to Unfiltered. And don't forget to leave a rating and a review on iTunes. If you know someone who might like this series, do them a favour and tell them about it. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe.